0: Welcome to the First Assembly podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message and find encouragement through the Holy Spirit. Hello. Oh, it's good to hear the chatter. It's good to hear chatter. It really is. Well, I'm. for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Marshall Izinga. I... Uh, I work for Focus on the Family Canada. My wife and I we run their uh, retreat center that's uh, situated just southwest of the city, and uh, we the retreat center is for pastors, parachurch people, and uh, missionaries. And so we get to speak into their lives. Lord, open the door uh, for us to do this. After about 33 years of ministry in Ontario, and that's kind of a great introduction because we moved to Alberta six years ago. It was uh, this summer. And uh, when we got up here in August, our daughter, who is a critical care nurse in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, she wanted to fly to Alberta to see where we, our new home and to see the retreat center that we were running. And, and, and we were in conversation with her. We said, what do you want to do when you come up? And she kind of hum- didn't take her long at all to figure out and say, I want to go to Drumheller. I want to see the Royal Terrell Museum. And I want to see the hoodoos. That, that's what I want to see. Okay, Jill, we can take care of that. So we set out one morning, and we make our way to Drumheller, and uh, we go to the museum, and we see it all, and then we, uh, you know, you do what you do when you're in a place that you don't know where the food's going to be all, where you should eat. So we Googled and found a restaurant, the name of which I can't recall right at the moment. But uh, we went there, had lunch, and after lunch was done, I said to our server, I said, hey, We've never been to Drumheller before. Can you direct us toward the hoodoos? And she said, oh, man, it is so easy, and it's going to be quick. You won't have any trouble getting there from here. Well, I wrote down what she told me. Then I repeated it back to her step by step. Turn left here. Turn right there. Yeah, this is it. Follow these directions, and you will get there. You know that we didn't get there. In fact, when we followed her directions right to the T, and we found ourselves literally on a, on a tractor path in the middle of the flat prairie land in somebody's field, and there were no hoodoos in sight. There wasn't anything to be seen from where we were. The question we had was, where were we? And how in the world were we even going to get to where we wanted to go? Well, I'm fairly confident that uh, for all of us, as we've traveled the road of life, we've had a, a similar type of experience. We've looked into the future and we've set out with incredible confidence, headed because we know we're headed in the right direction, and we know we're going to get there. But what happens sometimes in life is that the destination we're headed towards, that we can actually even see sometimes on the horizon, gets lost in the fog or simply disappears. And... During such times of lostness or uncertainty, it creates crisis, a crisis of faith. And these crisis and these tension filled moments can quickly turn into a period of time where we feel disillusioned, confused, disoriented, and unsure. If dealing with these emotions wasn't bad enough, we find ourselves bombarded by inward, internal questions. This isn't what I envisioned. This isn't what I expected. This isn't the way I thought this would work out. I'm stuck and there appears to be no way out, no way forward. Then a question I think we've all asked ourselves is, God, where are you? And what is going on? As we work through the conflict of what we're experiencing and what we felt we were to do or the the way we were to go, it can be like finding ourselves in the middle of that farmer's field with no hoodoo, whatever your hoodoo would be, with no hoodoos in sight, wondering what to do next. Boy, I'll tell you, there's been some times in my life, and there's probably times in your life, where when you have felt that the Holy Spirit, the Heavenly Father, has been the one giving you direction. He was directing the steps that you were taking. You were making your way towards the destiny. With some sense of calling and certainty. When you get into those in-between times. The calling becomes fate. And the certainty becomes very uncertain. And we find ourselves in the unfamiliar. And we find ourselves in the unfriendly space of the in-between. Well if you've been there. You're not alone. Because life, the situations we find ourselves, take us through some in-between times, and it's common to mankind. Author Debbie Thomas wrote, she says she wonders if the in-betweenness is the quintessential human condition. Now, if the word quintessential isn't part of your normal vocabulary, let me tell you that it can mean a typical example. So the in-between time is a typical example of what happens during our journey through life. What I found fascinating as I was doing some research for this sermon today is that there's actually an English word that perfectly describes the times or or the seasons when we find ourselves in that in-between ambiguous time of setting out toward a goal and then finally reaching our destination. And the word is liminal. Liminal means it's the transitional stage of a process. We've all faced liminal times. We face them in our careers, in our marriages. Maybe there's been some financial pressure. I'll tell you this much. When you move into a new city and into a new province, there are many liminal moments. But I also know that when you move to a new country, there can be liminal moments as well. Those in-between times about why I'm here and what's happening while I'm trying to get to where I thought I would be. Liminal moments happen during relationships or illness or disease. But I'll even break the word disease up and say it's in times of dis ease. As I was writing this section out, I thought of another place where people can face liminal moments where there's that in between time. And the reason I, I leave this to last is because I felt the Spirit of the Lord just drop something into my heart. If you are going to school or if you're in some type of schooling or you're taking some type of education, and you feel as if what you started to do, you really aren't sure if it's what you should be doing. If you're in that in-between place, and maybe things aren't working out, and maybe you're a little, you're just like, I, I, I'm not sure. I can't figure this out. I felt the Lord through His Spirit just drop this into my mind. Say, just say to those that are in this kind of experience right now, keep going. God has directed your steps in your schooling and in your education. And although it may be counterintuitive to keep going, I believe the Spirit of the Lord wants you to know it's not counterintuitive. He is the one who's leading your life. Just continue on. As I began to think about some biblical characters who had lived through this quintessential, in-between liminal seasons of life. It didn't take long to come up with a number of them. I kind of like Peter because his only lasted three days. He falls, he disowns Christ, and three days later, Jesus is there saying, I want you back, lead these disciples. In the book of Acts, we see that the apostle Paul had a three-year liminal period of time between his conversion and when barnabas went to get him and to engage him in ministry in the old testament we can look at hannah hannah we don't know it was an untold number of years from her wedding day until she gave birth to samuel abraham had to wait 25 years not only wait but he had to wander for 25 years waiting for the promise of having his son isaac Last night as I was reading, just reading through my notes and I was thinking about Hannah and Abraham and the weight they had for children, I, this, this other thought about what God is doing in our lives came to mind. Because you see, I believe that there are those, there may be a woman or there may be a man, and it's a couple, it could be very much so. You're, you've been calling out to God for a child. You've been calling out either for a child or on behalf of a child. And I want you to know. That God has heard your prayer. But not only has he heard your prayer. Like he did for Han. And like he did for Abraham. He's granting your petition. Whatever your petition is. He's granting it. Well. As I kept looking for other examples. Within scripture. I came across Joseph. Who spent 23 years. From the time of his dreams till the time that he finally became second in command in Egypt. And some of those years he spent in prison. What a liminal time that would have been. Then there's, then there's David. Spent 13 to 15 years between, the shep, between being a shepherd boy and becoming king. And here's what I noticed about these biblical characters as they navigated the liminal in between quintessential times that there is between the promise being given and the promise being fulfilled their stories inform us that when we go through life as they went through life there will be challenges there will be difficulties there will be unseen additional hairpin turns on the road of life i want you to know something else though as i read their stories and if you take the time to read their stories or even think through their stories again For me, I saw a way of life where the season of waiting was never defined as a wasted season. In fact, if that is all you recall from today's sermon is that phrase, a waiting season is never a wasted season, it will have been a good day in the house of the Lord for you. You see, my reason for saying this is because when you can view a waiting season as not being a wasted season, you are actually showing spiritual maturity. You are being everything that God has designed and called you to be. Well, this morning we're going to examine a liminal time in David's life. And as we do, we're going to be able to see how we can live in such a way as that we can walk through the waiting seasons of life and not have wasted it. Well, we're going to look back at a period of time in David's life. He was somewhere, they say, between 15 and 17 years old. The prophet Samuel knows that he has to anoint a new king, and he's been directed to Jesse's house, David's father's place. He has D- Jesse gather the sons together, and so they're all standing there. You know the story well, for those of you that have grown up in church or have been in long enough to hear sermons on, David, on David's life. Samuel overlooks every son because he doesn't see one that he feels has been confirmed to him as being the son that is going to be the next king. And so he says, do you have another son to Jesse? And Jesse says, yeah, there's one, but he's out in the sheep. He's out with the sheep. Well, go get the shepherd. I got to have a look at him. And sure enough, when he comes in, Samuel says that this fine looking young man is going to be anointed as the next king of Israel. But going from the sheep pen to the palace didn't happen overnight. It took years and what you see as you read through the biblical account is that King Saul is showing no signs of slowing down, nor is he looks like he's going to die soon. In fact, in this liminal time in David's life, it's very interesting, the journey that he was on. He starts out in the palace as the chief musician, and then David kills Goliath, and he becomes the battalion commander. And, but the still the kingship's still not within his grasp. Then this little time becomes even more perplexing because King Saul wants to have David killed. And King Saul comes up with a great plan. I'm going to send him into some battles that he will not come back from. But David, man, what happens? He keeps winning every battle. And then because of that, jealousy begins to rise up within Saul's life. And on a number of occasions, he tries to kill his most decorated war veteran. So David flees to save his life. And again, this time of running for his own safety lasts for a few years. And David is spending some time in some very sparse places. One of the places he hides is in a cave in En And although it's picturesque, he is far from the comforts of home. He's dwelling in holes in the rocks. Now I will tell you that six years ago, when we moved to Alberta, and the warm weather came, uh, we noticed that a lot of our neighbors brought out the, out of storage their trailers, their RVs, and man, they were getting ready to head west into the mountains. They had some places they wanted to go camping. But then we also found out that there were some other neighbors who they may not have had the trailers or the RVs, but they had tents, and they were loading those tents and their sleeping bags. And their air mattresses because they they consider themselves to be the real campers. None of this glamping for them. But let's stop for a moment because if you compare David sleeping on the floors of caves and using a stone as a pillow, even those of you that like to tent, although you're not here this morning because you're probably (laughs) tenting this weekend. So if you're watching online, David was the real camper. He was. And I will say this to you. Mary and I have been fortunate. We've taken some tours of Israel. And so we've been to en- Engedi on a couple of occasions. And we've seen its tranquil beauty. It's quite a thing to think that David, as he was there, he was living in a cave. And as he looked out of that cave, he was either looking at the wilderness that surrounded Engedi. Or he was looking out over the lifeless waters of the Dead Sea. You see, this wasn't what he thought his future would look like. He's still on the run, even though he's been anointed king. When we're in liminal places, dwelling in the in-between times of promise and fulfillment, our landscape, that which we see with our eyes, can appear as barren as the wilderness or as dead as the Dead Sea. And when we recall where, how we set out, we never saw this part of the journey because it wasn't supposed to happen to faithful, God-loving, God-fearing people like us. The liminal season we find ourselves in seems bleak and it's dreary. The color of our world and our hopes fades in the heat of the unrelenting and ever-lengthening liminal time. And it's this which is the backdrop first david penning psalm 57 let me say this this is a great series summer in the psalms and it's really meant and i believe it's also true of what pastor cody is doing in terms of taking you through the scripture for those of you that come with him because this summer is designed so that we don't have a summer slump but we have a summer jump because that's what we want for you say it again. it's a summer jump and not a summer slump In Psalm 57, David gives vent to his feelings, but also to his faith in God. He's living in the waiting time of being anointed king before he actually becomes king. And so as we read, I'm going to just read the first three verses of Psalm 57. I'm going to stop and we'll kind of go through it because it kind of breaks it beautifully into three parts. But I've purposely included the note at the top of the psalm. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time he fled from Saul and went into the cave to be sung to the tune of Do Not Destroy. And so what that tells me is that David loved this tune, and he just kept changing the words of it to fit whatever circumstance he found himself in. But he also identifies for us that he's fleeing from Saul, and he's living in the cave, as I have already said to you, where he is found. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me interlude. God will send forth his His love and faithfulness. This is where David was. And I'll tell you what, I... I have read Psalm 57 a number of times, but I actually missed what David was saying here in those first three verses until Friday night. I just I, I skimmed over it, I'll tell you. But there is so so much incredible truth, because what David does in these first three verses is he identifies why we enter into waiting times and why we should never consider them as wasted times. Very quickly. Here's what he says: You'll receive in a waiting time because it will never be wasted. You'll receive God's protection, God's fulfilled purpose, and God's rescue. You see, I, I, I don't is it, I, is it on the, on the screen? This is just a prayer. I want you to pray right at the beginning because this needs to be at the heart of who you and I are as Christians. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me. Yeah. That needs to be our prayer as it was David's prayer. Because David intrinsically knew that right from the beginning of every minimal t- liminal time, God was on his side. God was going to be there for him. You see, if you walk away from God, you can't be under the shadow of his protection. We need to live with the same understanding because when we face the liminal situations like David, and as he describes them in the next section of the Psalms, this is our foundation as it was. And this is the foundation we need to be able to live through that in-between time. Here's how he describes the liminal time. I am surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour prey, whose teeth pierce like arrows and Spears and arrows and whose tongues cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. My enemies have set a trap for me. I am weary from distress. They have dug a deep pit in my path. But they themselves have fallen into it interlude. You see, there's no question in reading this passage that you notice that as David is living through this liminal time... He's feeling discouraged. He's feeling alone. He's feeling disillusioned. And I'd say that he is feeling like we do fretful and somewhat worried and concerned. Just look at the imagery he uses. He talks about being hounded, that his enemies are as lions, that who have teeth like spears and arrows, and whose tongues cut like swords. He uses this imagery also of one who is being hunted by a a trap, trying to be trapped by a hunter, who is trying to use a net to entangle his feet. It appears that some of the fear that he's facing is based on what he has seen or experienced, but some of it is based on what's unseen, but being felt. This in between time, this liminal time in David's life is so intense that he uses the word bowed down. Now that you look at that and you go, what what's he getting at? Is his head down? Can't he keep his eyes up because he doesn't want to look at the future? No, he's actually he's speaking of his soul, his mind, his will, and his emotions being bowed down. What he's saying is that what I am going through, I I, I can't I'm hard I, I can't face it internally. The the phrase in identifies the intensity of the perplexing emotions that david is experiencing and thinking about the profound sense of being overwhelmed by this time in life one unnamed theologian wrote the following he says take a look at the end of verse six david places the word selah interlude in english in an unusual place David wants his readers to get a good look at or have the depth of understanding of the ungodly nature and the desire of his enemies. David is feeling the intense heat of this moment. And when we are in liminal places, there is no question we also feel that intense heat. Our nerves are on edge and we can feel as if everything and everyone is working against us. We could likely even point to people or events that are lion-like, trying to keep us from our destiny. We also know what it's like to have to face the attack of the enemy of our souls who strategically speaks words that will cut us to the core. In reading about David's liminal time and and thinking about the liminal seasons in my life, I've thought about how these seasons and these times have impacted me from a, a negative point of view. There have been times, that those little moments, where I have felt frantic. What do I do when I become frantic? I become impatient. I try to think about how I can make things happen on my own initiative, how I can just do something for myself, take a shortcut to get to my preferred destination. Because you see, when I'm feeling this way, I believe that God doesn't know best. I've also felt frazzled. At this juncture, my mind wants to give up. I want to turn around, which means I've stopped believing God is or will direct my steps. Then I've also felt fearful, worrying and anxiety start to ramp up in my life. And this leads to some nebulous thoughts about dark days that are ahead for me. And here I begin to think about God, that he's no longer for me, but he's against me. As I think about these times where I have felt frantic, frazzled, and fearful, I agree with Richard Rohrer who said, this is a terrible cloud of unknown that we have entered into. And it's the unknowing that fills our lives with this tension and unease. In these seasons, anxiety starts to take hold and we begin to focus our attention on what's creating the anxiousness. As this grows unchecked, we can be impacted not only emotionally, but mentally and spiritually. And boy, do we ever begin to fall at that point. For a moment, I, I pondered David and how he lived his life and how he was coping in the middle of this liminal time, this time of waiting. And as I thought about him, I thought about the man who was, had placed him in that liminal time. You see, there was a point in King Saul's life where he was asked by the prophet to wait. But what happens as you read the story is that Saul, instead of waiting, becomes frantic, frazzled, and fearful. And he looked at the time that he had to wait as wasted time. I've got to do something, I've got to engage. Everything's going against me. But if I do something of my own initiative, I can, I can bring this back together. Sadly, He does what he wasn't supposed to do. And as soon as he does it, Samuel the prophet shows up. And when he does, one of the first things Samuel says to him is that, King Saul, this move, your rash move, has cost you the kingship. Sadly, King Saul viewed a waiting time as a wasted time. And the cost of it was far more than Saul thought he would ever have to pay. We need to ponder if, if we're in a waiting time, and we think of it as wasted time, will there be ramifications as great as what King Saul faced? Sadly, I've come across another group of people that, in the midst of a waiting time, as they've moved out into their of their own accord, own accord or initiative, their frantic, frazzled, fearful state has led them to a midlife crisis. they lose everything. Well, what do we do when we find ourselves in such seasons, in such times? David gives us some great clues. As we look at David's response, we will learn how we can, as Scott Stoner writes, honor the space between the no longer and not yet As we turn our attention back to Psalm 57, we're going to see how we can live in liminal times and why we can see that it's not a wasted time. Here is how we are to live. My heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. Wake up, my heart. Wake up, O lear and harp. I will make the dawn. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people I will sing your praise among the nations. For your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. I am sure that as soon as I started to read verse 7, you noticed the shift from from the liminal space of that which was temporal to that which is eternal. You see, David says, I know something about life. I'm going to go back to where I started about what I know about God. But what I found in verses 7 through 11 is that David speaks of two ways that he had to focus his attention so that he could honor the liminal space between the no longer and the not yet. David, first of all, says he declares he will continually live with an inward conviction. My heart is confident in you, O oh God. My heart is confident. This will likely be more of a reminder that in Scripture, when something is repeated, it's there to get our attention. We're to, say, we're to sit up and take notice. And David is repeating his inward conviction. He's saying to God, I'm all in on your ability to carry me through this time and get me out of this quintessential moment in my life. In the midst of the fray, when his heart could be racing when there would be occasion for it to be in turmoil, David tunes out the rhetoric of both the physical and the spiritual enemy that was trying to get his attention and destroy him. And he declares his absolute confidence, his inward conviction in his God, who is our Heavenly Father. You see, what we see in this psalm about David reaching out and speaking the truth about God is how we need to see Jesus Christ as we're on this side of the cross. That what he has to say, this inner conviction about Jesus being with us needs to be the same as it was for him. I want you to just to remind you, this wasn't a spur of the moment declaration for David. This was his way of life. It was a pattern of inward belief that he had developed through the years. It goes back to that time when he defeated Goliath. He stands before King Saul and King Saul says, here's my armor. No, I don't need the armor. I, I know how to do this. God's shown me. He's, he's helped me defeat a lion and a bear. And this, this man, Goliath, will be nothing different. He will come down the same way. You see, his inward conviction came from knowing and living in the light of who God was, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's no shadow of turning with him. Now, let's be honest. None of us in this room have fought lions and bears. None of us. Although in each of our lives, since we became Christians... We've had victories where God's involvement in our lives has been unmistakable. Yeah. M- victories where has felt as if we have beaten some wild and unmanageable foe. And never forget those moments. Let them be the foundation, the bedrock you stand upon when you find yourself in the midst of a waiting season. Remember what Jesus said about the man who built his home upon the rock? When the storm came, the house stood and we can stand in the middle of any waiting season, a waiting stormy season, when we're anchored to our inward conviction in God. You see, we can declare that same type of inward conviction and say, "I'm not no man's land. I may not know exactly where I am, but God knows where I am." He hasn't lost sight of me. His purpose for me hasn't changed. I still have a destiny because he is the one who declared it. And I can confidently say, I am confident. So I will stay calm and composed. It's this type of conviction that allows us to say like David, to be able to say, God, your love and your faithfulness is immeasurable. You see, when we are confident in God's faithfulness and his love, it really does evaporate the clouds that form that hinder our view when we're frantic, frazzled, and fearful. Yeah. When we're the midst of that farmer's field, and we don't, like I said before, we don't know where the hoodoos are. Whatever your hoodoo is, continue to trust God. In fact, I've got a couple of rhetorical questions for you, just to ponder. Would it be fair to say that when we find ourselves in the midst of a liminal season, our Heavenly Father is just deepening our reliance on Him? Would it be fair to say that He's just bringing greater spiritual depth into our lives? That's the inner conviction we need. The second thing is in a waiting season, so it's not a wasted season, is that we need to continue to live with an outward expression. The last, the last verses of David's psalm are filled with words that speak of this outward expression. I can sing your praises. I will waken the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord. I will, praise. I will sing your praise among the nations. Take a look at the first two words of each of those lines. I can and I will. These are definite, emphatic statements. David is saying he has every intention of singing, wakening the dawn, and being thankful. David wants those who are around him and those like us who read his words to understand that in the midst of a waiting season, there is nothing that can stop us from lifting our voices to be thankful and to shout our praises to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm going to tell you right now, if David had been standing outside that, that prison, in Philippi where, where Paul and Silas were held captive and he heard them singing at midnight, he would have been saying this, that's what I'm talking about, that's what I'm talking about right there. Yeah. Yeah. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, I'm just, I'm just reading through the Bible, so I'm, I'm just reading through part of the Psalms, and I just smiled as I read each of the last three nights specifically. Because time and time again, David says, I will, praise the Lord, I will give thanks. You see, it wasn't only for him, it was for those who were around him. He wanted to make sure that they understood his outward expression because it was his natural response. As I think of David's inner conviction and his outward expression, I think of a man that I know by the name of Jerry. Jerry, two months after I met him, he and his wife faced the devastating loss of a stillborn child. They had been trying for a number of years for her to get pregnant, to have a child of their own. Two years after that, they lost one in utero. And it was some. Mo- and I watched them walk through this, these periods of grief, trying to figure out, God, what's going on. One day, I don't even know where we're going, and I don't know why Jerry was driving, but we were going somewhere, and we're driving along, and and um, he's just talking to me about life, about what they've experienced over the last two and a half, maybe three years by that point. And as he's talking to me, I'm I'm listening to this man who's who has this inner conviction about how good God is, and in the midst of it, I'm I'm like Jerry you know what you've gone through? I didn't say that out. work. I was smart enough not to say that out loud, okay? That was my inside voice. But I'm thinking, Jerry, how do you, how, how can you, how do, you do that? But Jerry and his wife, man, they, they knew that God was good. That God was going to, in some measure, God was going to rescue them. He was going to be their protection. He was going to be the one who would answer the questions they had. And they just said it in their hearts that they were going to live for him. They weren't going to give up. And I'm driving with him, and I'm listening to him talk about how good God is. And then he begins to identify some things in their life for the last couple years, even in the midst of the turmoil and the loss. He said, Marsh, I've got to tell you what God's done for us. And he identified these things. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. But you see, I've got to tell you that I didn't just hear about it in the car. Jerry worked with me in, our, in the youth program that I ran in that church. And so he would show up on Thursday nights, he and his wife, and they would just worship God. And the kids knew the story. The kids all knew. They would worship, and then they would talk to the kids about how good God was. And I'm like, you're unbelievable. Do you know that in that group of 25 kids, I had 12 of them that went to Bible college? You know, it wasn't me. I think it was people like Jerry and, and, and his wife who told the story that, you no know, matter when you get into liminal times and you don't understand what's going on, trust God. And so as they stepped out towards whatever God had called them, they said, "I can trust the God who Jerry trusted. That's who I'm following. That's where I'm going." It was unbelievable to me that two years after that in-year--old little one died. I got a call one day uh, and why they called me my, the, was my aunt. Why she ever called me, I have no clue. My aunt said, do you know anybody? She said, I don't even know why I'm calling yet, but do you know anybody who would like to adopt a little girl? We have a little girl in our church, baby. It's gonna be born in a month. Do you know anybody who wants? And I went, do I know anybody? I know the perfect couple. I got right on the phone I called Johnson's and I said I think God's answered your prayer I think your liminal time has come to an end they've raised that little girl it's been wonderful to watch tell you what if you're here this morning and you're in a liminal or an in-between season as David and as Jerry walk through that, I'm going to tell you right now, you keep walking. You keep believing. You let it deepen your faith because a waiting season is never a wasted season. If you're here this morning and you're in a, a liminal time, I'm gonna, this is what I want you to do I want you to take one of your, you can take both of your hands but one and I want you to put it into a fist and I want you to just raise it to shoulder level you're not making a fist at God it's not a declaration that I'm mad at God I'm going to get through this somehow no what the fist indicates is that you're holding on to God and you see the reason I want you to lift it up like this is because if my little grandkids were here if I reach down to grab their hand they have to lift their hand up I am a child of the king you are a child of the king you are lifting your hand and saying I'm, I'm walking with you I'm going to keep in step with the spirit through this liminal time Father I thank you today for your faithfulness to us I thank you that you protect us, that you will rescue us, and that you're good to us. And today there are people across this auditorium, whether on the main floor of the balcony or even watching online, and they have their hand clenched, but it's, it's not because they're mad. It's like I said, they're holding onto your hand because you are going to lead them out and you're going to lead them into the destiny that you have for them. Father, what they're going through isn't wasted, because you are in it with them. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message. We pray that you have received truth and have been encouraged. For more information about First Assembly, how to get connected, and to listen to our latest worship albums, please visit our website at www.fa.church.